0: Our Father, we do gather together as the body of Christ, desiring to worship you and to honor you, to give you glory that you so rightly deserve. And Lord, we are thankful for the scriptures and how they instruct us, how they guide our hearts and our minds, that you lead us into all truth. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells us and can show us the truth, help us to understand it, to get it right out of the scriptures, and Lord, help us to always be willing to put down our desires, our thoughts, uh, our ideas, and yield to the, to the teachings that rise out of scripture. May this class be pleasing to you and all that's done in this place today. Bring glory and honor to your name, for it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. This is week number 43 in our study, and we're coming to the end of Ezekiel, hopefully um, able to finish maybe next week. And then we'll, if the Lord wills, move over into Daniel and walk through the pages of Daniel uh, beginning at the very beginning. So um, last week we were in chapter 45 of Ezekiel, And we moved into 46, and you'll remember those passages had to do with the feasts and the four feasts that exist in the millennial kingdom as opposed to six feasts, which were in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, There's uh, three feasts which carry over and one additional new feast at the beginning of the new year, and we talked all about those. We also saw that it's the prince. Who provides all the animals and the and the oil and the grains to be used not only on the, during those feasts but also uh, at Passover? I mean, at, uh, on the Sabbaths and all the new moons, which guide the worship in the millennial kingdom. That uh, the eastern gate is opened and their sacrifices are given. The prince eats his meals up in the gate. Um, The people all stand out in front of the gate and worship the Lord. And then at the end of the day, the gate is shut. And that happens repeatedly, um, at least once a week and sometimes twice a week, um, depending on when the new moon is. And then, of course, it can open an additional time, and that's when the prince brings a free will offering. So these gates and this worship is going on all the time uh, during the millennial kingdom. And so we come down to verse 13 in chapter 46. And we looked at this just for a moment last week, but I want to just show you that in addition to the Sabbath, the new moons, uh, the free will offerings, there's also this daily offering of a sacrifice to the Lord. And so beginning in verse 13, you see that, where it, said, where it reads, Ezekiel 46, 13, and you shall provide a lamb, a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering to the Lord daily. Morning by morning you shall provide it, and you shall provide a grain offering with it morning by morning, a sixth of an ephah, and a third of a hen of oil to moisten the fine flour, a grain offering to the Lord continually by a perpetual ordinance. Thus they shall provide the lamb, the grain offering, and the oil morning by morning for a continual burnt offering. So I take this to mean like on the Sabbath, the first thing you have is this morning by morning offering, and then you bring the sacrifices for the Sabbath. And if it happened to be also a new moon, then you would do the sacrifice for the morning, those for the Sabbath, and those for the new moon would all happen on the same day. So that would be a, you know, a tremendous day of worship to the Lord. So these sacrifices here, this is every day of the year, never stops. Um, So again, it's the prince who brings these animals and the oil and the flour um, for this grain offering and the um, <clears throat> sacrifice. So you begin to wonder, okay, what do they do with all these sacrificed animals, right? I mean, wait, I mean, you've got a lot of animals that are being sacrificed. Well, the answer to that is, comes in verses 19 through 24 of this, or, well, at least, yeah, I think we do get the answer there answer there. So you, you keep on reading and you look at verses 19 and 20 and I don't know why he put it here maybe because it is associated with the sacrifices but notice what it says. Then he brought me through the entrance which was at the side of the gate into the holy chambers for the priest which faced north and behold there was a place at the extreme rear toward the west He said to me, this is the place where the priests shall boil the guilt offering and the sin offering and where they shall bake the grain offering in order that they may not bring them out into the outer court to transmit holiness to the people. So you go, well, what's going on here? Well, in the very corner of the inner court where the priests are, because these are the chambers of the priests who minister near to the Lord. Is a kitchen and this is where they cook all this food that has been sacrificed this is where they bake the bread and you know whatever you do with with all that oil and flour this is where it's done so that all the priests can then go to their chambers and eat this food so this is what sustains the priests when they're in service now clearly all the um Sons of Zodak and even all the Levites could not all minister at the same time. There's too many of them. So it must be some kind of rotation. But when they're there, this is the food that they're eating. Okay, so then you go, well, there's a lot of people other than the priests who need to be fed, especially the Levitical priests who are in the temple and are serving. Well, the scriptures answer that also. And again, I think this is here in this passage of scripture and not earlier when we were talking about the inner chambers, because it is associated with all these animals and with all the grain that's brought and all the sacrifices. And what do you do with all of this? So you go on down. So you got the priest who are baking and cooking in their kitchen, but then in verse 21, He continues, he says, then he brought me out into the outer court and led me across to the four corners of the court. Now, this is the outer court. And behold, in every corner of the court, there was a small court. In the four corners of the court, there were enclosed courts, 40 cubits long and 30 wide. These four in the corners were the same size. There was a row of masonry round about in them, around the four of them, and boiling places were made under the rows round about. Then he said to me, these are the boiling places where the ministers of the house shall boil the sacrifices of the people. And again, this is a kitchen. This is where they're cooking by boiling and baking and taking the sacrifices of the people in order to at least feed the priest and probably the people also. So this is what's happening to some of these animals, is that they're being used after they're given to the Lord to feed the people, to especially feed the priests. And that's always been true. Even in the Old Testament law, it was the priest who ate the showbread, who ate the sacrifices, um, and only the priest, no one else. You can remember when David went into Uh, the temple and took the showbread and ate it, and they were all in an uproar, but the Lord was fine with it because that's the way he was sustaining David. Um, But that's what's going on here. So in each corner of this outer court, there's a kitchen and a place where they can cook food and bake bread and feed um, the ministers of the temple. And if you go back and you look at where the distinction was made between the Zadokian priests and those who were not the sons of Zadok, this is the same term that's used for those who were not, that is the ministers of the house. And so these are the Levitical priests who are not the sons of Zadok. And so this um, this is what they do with a lot of the sacrifices. And th- this is how the people are able to go and worship and not starve to death um, because they're, they actually have four, well, that's five kitchens now in the temple proper, some for the people, some for the priest. So as we, as we move on, you begin to look at chapter 30, 47. 47 has... It's a very interesting chapter. You think about what we've talked about, that several times, you can remember when, uh, all the way back in chapter 36, when God was speaking to the land and blessing the land itself, that he said one of the blessings of the land is that the cities are gonna be full of people, full of men, it says, and the waste places will be rebuilt and they'll be full of people and then we get over to the end of chapter 36 i think it's the last verse and it says that the people in israel will be like jerusalem was during the feasts meaning i mean jerusalem was full of people you can remember the description at the Passover when Christ went in and there were people shoulder to shoulder in the temple and and that whole description. Well, that's what the whole land of Israel is going to be like. It's going to be a horde of people. And then you can remember when we saw the, um, what I believe is the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, when we saw them in the Valley of Dry Bones and when they all stood up It was like an exceedingly great army meaning there's a lot of them and so even all those people are going to be in the land of israel beyond those that live through the tribulation that god has protected and hidden and beyond all the offspring that they have so this israel is full of people so you go well how can all those people possibly be fed and nourished and where do they get all their food from And, you know, we've said that God says the land is going to be very abundant and the trees are going to give forth fruit uh, abundantly. But this chapter, chapter 47, gives us another idea of how God is providing everything that is needed in the millennial kingdom. And it starts out harmless enough, but it just crescendos toward the end of this chapter. So I wanna walk through this and we'll just begin looking at it and you see what results. And this is one of the great changes in Israel that happens during the millennial kingdom. Nothing like this ever before and won't be until the millennial kingdom. And you'll see, this this is a miraculous chapter. Everything that happens in this chapter is a miracle coming directly from God for the people in Israel. So let's look at it. You just read the first three verses of chapter 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the house and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles." Okay, so (laughs) you go into the inner court and over, you know, you remember you face the altar and you go up from the eastern side to get up on the altar where all the sacrifices are made because the steps are on the eastern side. Then you go around the other side of the altar and you have the steps that lead up to the porch that leads into the tabernacle and so somewhere on the south side which from the way i look at it if you're um, looking eastward right then the south side would be on the right side so on the right side there's this trickle of water that begins and it says it begins south of the altar which means it's between the altar And the eastern gate that leads into the inner court. So all of a sudden you've got this little trickle of water. And then if you walk out to the outer court, it either goes through the outer court or it goes underneath the outer court. Not real sure, because it's not described. Because what the angel does, the angel leads Ezekiel out of the inner court, across the outer court, out the northern gate. And then they walk around outside of the temple to the eastern gate and he says there you see this same trickle of water continuing so you have this water that starts really at the house of the lord that's just a trickle and then it flows and you still once you get outside of the temple you still just have a trickle of water then if you measure out a thousand cubits which using the long cubit that we've been using, is about a third of a mile. Then the water, all of a sudden, is up to your ankles. Now, how a trickle becomes ankle-deep, I'm not real sure. Because if you, you think about the way that we understand rivers are formed, there's a bunch of little streams, right, that come together and form a river, and so it gets bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper. And that makes sense cuz you got all these things feeding into it. But that's not true here. You just have a trickle coming out of the temple that all of a sudden becomes ankles deep. Which means it's got to be flowing. It gets it gets deeper, okay? Cuz you keep going and he measured in verse 4 and he measured a thousand, measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. So now you're two-thirds of a mile from where it started, and it's up to your knees. Again, he measured a 1,000 and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. So now you walk your mile from where it started, and it's waist deep. Now, where's all this water coming from? This is part of the miracle, right? You just got to trickle this feeding all of this, but all of a sudden it's a waist deep gets deeper. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? No, sorry, verse 5. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. Now, you know what that means, right? To ford a river means to walk from one side to the other. Well, you can't because it's too deep. It's over your head. So you have to swim if you're going to get across this river. And notice this a river. It's not just a pond of water. It's flowing, and we'll see that it definitely is flowing. And so where's all this water coming from, is the question. Because a trickle does not become a river that's over your head. This is the miracle of God, one of the miracles that God is performing because the source of this, remember, is the temple. It's the presence of the Lord. That's where it begins. And so this is where it's flowing to. And then he says in verse six, he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? It's like, no kidding, I had to swim to get here. Have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. So Ezekiel gets over his head in this river. This is a vision, but nevertheless, he's over his head in this river that he has to swim to get to the bank. And so they're sitting on the bank, and he's like, where did all this water come from? Because it's this big river that's now flowing, and it's wide enough, we don't know how wide it is, but it's wide enough that you can't just simply step across it. You have to swim across it. So it's significant in size. And then all of a sudden just out of the middle of nowhere in verse 7. Now when I return, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on one side and on the other. So all of a sudden, this river, as it gets over your head, there's all kinds of vegetation on each side of it. We don't know how far it goes, but you can imagine that it goes pretty far, and it's there because the water from the river is nourishing it. And then you have these trees that are growing up on each side of the river. So now you're walking through forest that has a river flowing through the middle of it. Okay? And you're only a mile and a third from the temple when we're here. All of a sudden the trees appear. Okay? And you remember we talked about this. It's 45 miles from the Mediterranean Sea to the Dead Sea. So, if the temple's in the middle, that's 27 and a half miles. Here's a mile and a third. You still got 27 miles to go before you get to the Dead Sea. So, long way. And apparently, these trees are on each side of the river, all the way there. So, you got 27 miles of trees of some depth that we don't know exactly that are being nourished by this river that God is providing miraculously to flow over to the Dead Sea. Now, we keep going and there's more miracles that happen as we go on through this. You get down to verses seven and eight. We read seven, now eight. Then he said to me, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down to the Arabah. Then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. So this is a freshwater stream that's flowing, and it goes all the way to the Arabah. The Arabah, probably, most likely, is the area where the Israelites followed Joshua across the Jordan to get to Jericho. They didn't go to Jericho first. They went to a city just north of it. Then they went to Jericho. But this is the region that is where the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. And so it's a little bit north of where we had the temple pictured. So this river flows for 27 miles and ultimately winds up in the valley where the River of Jordan is, and feeds into the River of Jordan to feed into the Dead Sea. And notice what it says. It says, the Dead Sea becomes fresh. Now, it takes a lot of water to make the Dead Sea become fresh, because the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because it's so full of salt. The Dead Sea has six times more salt in it than regular seawater has, which is why there's no life at the Dead Sea and why it's called the Dead Sea, because nothing can live there because there's way too much salt. So that whole sea, the whole thing, becomes fresh. So it takes a lot of water flowing into the Dead Sea to make it fresh. You can see this trickle (laughs) that starts at the temple becomes a roaring river that flows into the Dead Sea. Now, why does God do this? Well, one reason is so he can nourish the trees that are on each side of the river. But there's another reason as we continue to read through this. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there and the others become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes." So what is, what is this river? This is a river of life coming from the, so, the source of life, right? Coming out of the temple causing this whole region, the sides of the river for 27 miles, the Jordan, and the Dead Sea, to all of a sudden teem with fish and all these other creatures that would live around the water. So, this is a, if you go there today, this is a desert. And you get to the Dead Sea, and there are no fishermen there because there's no fish there, and it's just a barren, desert, nothing kind of land. But here, is dramatically changed. It's totally changed, and God's purpose for doing this, this is one of the sources of the food that's gonna feed all these people that, where the land is so densely populated. So this is God, again, providing everything that is needed by the land of Israel during the millennial kingdom through miraculous means, okay? He goes on and he says, "'And it will come about that fishermen "'will stand beside it from Engindi to Eniglaim. "'There will be a place for the spreading of nets. "'Their fish will be according to their kinds, "'like the fish of the great sea, very many now the great sea is what the mediterranean so just as the mediterranean is full of fish and other animals so is this dead sea now and you notice that the people can't just lay around and the fish come to them that you got to have fishermen so this is part of the work that the people in Israel do when it said that they, uh, six days of work, this is part of the work. Just like taking care of the animals or growing the grain and harvesting the grain, all of that is the work that the people in Israel do. So it's not just a life of leisure where everybody lays around and doesn't do anything. It's a land that is agricultural in its nature that is producing everything that is needed by the people who live there. This is the millennial kingdom. This is what God intended when he first gave this land to Israel. This is what he told them about, land flowing with milk and honey. We'll have more than you need. And never did that all become true. But here in the millennial kingdom, God fulfills those original promises. And you see, he does it supernaturally, just as he would have done when he first gave the promises. Now, we all know that this whole plan is under the sovereignty of God, and He always knew that it wouldn't be fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. But this is one of the reasons why the land is so important, why Israel going to the land is so important, because this shows that God keeps His word, is always true to every detail, and never did His plan fail. Or did he speak something that wasn't true to those patriarchs? And the whole world can see this. Gotta remember, their nations are coming to parade before Jesus Christ, so they see this river, and they see how abundant the land is. And all of that causes them, whether they believe or not, to give honor to the king of the world, which is Jesus Christ. And so, if God doesn't do this, and this doesn't happen, then he doesn't keep his promises that he originally gave. And so God's uh, integrity is line with what's happening in these chapters. And this chapter in particular shows that he's going to do it in miraculous ways. Everything else we've seen has been, I guess, non-miraculous except for the building of the temple. Not exactly sure how that happens. We're not given that, but somebody builds the temple, whether that's God or the people, we don't know. But this here, this is all God. This chapter is all the miracles of God. No one else could do this. No one else even has this idea in mind. But here, Ezekiel gets to see it with his own eyes, and God takes care of the land of Israel providing what they need through miraculous means. And this, these two cities that were talked about, the first one, we're pretty sure, is on the western bank of the Dead Sea. It's, it's very similar to a city that existed during this time. The other one, we're not sure, but the, the thought is, and I think this is probably right that it's on the eastern side of the sea. So that you have people coming from all around the sea to get the fish, to fish it. And to, because now this is a freshwater haven for fish. And only God could take that much water with six times the salt that ordinary ocean water has and change it into fresh water. And it, he does it by mixing the miraculous fresh water with it to produce more fresh water. So this is, these are the miracles of God to take care and provide for all the people that he's going to send to Israel and how super abundant they're going to be and the land is going to be. So this is a a great source of food, just like the Mediterranean is during this time, for these people. So on the eastern side and on the western side of the land, you've got provision for food that the people can fish and have more than enough to eat. Yeah, I mean, this is all about glorifying the Son. I
1: mean, even the creation of
0: Satan, right? <laughs> the most beautiful and wisest of all the created
1: order. Look where he went. Then he created man, and look where he went. Then he raised up Israel, and look where they went. And then according to
0: us, then he raised up the church, and look where she went. Right? Yeah, all fallen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you, you're finding holiness is at such a level of, right? Yeah, I mean, the the, pre, the Z- Zadokian priests who was talking about there, they cook their food, and they have to stay in the chamber to eat it. And you remember, they had to change clothes, literally. Take off the satin and put on um, the cotton to go out into the outer court again so that they may not transmit holiness. I don't, don't know what that is. And then it says the same thing in Ezekiel 24. Yeah. And when they go out, out into the outer court of the people, they shall put off garments in which they have ministry, and lay them in the holy chamber and they shall put on other garments, lest they transmit holiness
1: to the people. Yeah. So there is still a separation there.
0: Yeah, what, what does it mean to transmit holiness to the people? It's something that it, it must be physical because they have to take their clothes off. You know, I don't know if the clothes are glowing like Moses' face did when he was, you know, in the presence of the Lord, that the the Lord's glory was all over him so he had to veil his face so the people wouldn't be so frightened. And that wasn't just occasionally. Moses, you know, we wear masks now at certain times, right? He had to wear one all the time because his face didn't just glow the day that he was in the holy place with God. He glowed all the time. And so he always was veiled. So <laughs> I don't know what that is. I mean, when it says that, that the priests have to take off their garments and they have to eat their food in the inner chamber so they won't transmit holiness to the people, apparently, apparently the people couldn't handle it. Only the Zadokian Zod- priests, who are special, who are separated out, can not only go there, but can only people who can exist there. So um, there, there, there's stuff going on here that we don't understand. This. The whole purpose, I mean, you know, I said this, this whole land is like it is to validate God's integrity, and it is. But at, as doing that, it also validates that of Jesus Christ, because everything that the scripture says is going to be fulfilled by Jesus Christ in his second advent happens in this land, it happens in the millennial kingdom in Israel. So all of this is very, very important for everything that God spoke in the Old Testament to have been true. And this is why I cringe when I understand that people reinterpret what the Old Testament said through the lens of the New Testament. Where the New Testament is intended to expand what the Old Testament said, not to reinterpret it and so that that is a danger that the church has today to be so centered on the New Testament that we see everything in the Old Testament through that lens which is why Ezekiel is the only place in Scripture that you have the fulfillment of everything that God has spoken in the Old Testament so it's critical that we understand this and we understand that this is for God's integrity. This is for, to show that God is who he says he is. Because if he's not, then we're all in a bad place. Well, you can see where some of it's sliding already if you look carefully at some of the, the debates at the seminary professor level today. You, Even with
1: the Southern Baptist
0: Christ. Oh yeah. Right.
1: precisely your point, which is you want itch yourself, as uh someone would say,
0: mm-hmm. uh, from the Old Testament, because that law thing is not even worth bringing up anymore. We're free in grace. Well, in, in misunderstanding what Christ said when he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So Christ thought it was important. Because his whole mission was to fulfill everything that was written in the law. And which he did perfectly. And I think you're gonna see that. I think this is such a
1: this maybe the link you might be wondering where we're going with this, but what you find in the millennial reign is a society, even an unregenerate society, who is living under the righteousness of the law.
0: Right. Which is one of the reasons I think the sacrifices are there. Because it gives the people a means of worship. I mean, today, what's the greatest way that you can worship God? To be obedient to what he has shown you in the scriptures. Right? A living sacrifice. So that's the greatest way that you can honor God, is to live obediently to what he's taught you out of the scriptures which is what these people are doing how you you they need to be obedient in order to worship God and that's God gives them the prescription if you would of how to do that in the millennial reign which is why all these ordinances and everything are given That's why they were originally given was to foreshadow Jesus Christ why they're given here is it gives the people a means to worship God Right. All the rest of us, the most we could ever do would be 666. (laughs) Everybody always goes right to the Antichrist with that, but the greatest
1: man will ever be is 666, because Christ was always reserved as the second.
0: Well, you remember what the Apostle John wrote, and he wrote it um, almost 2,000 years ago. The spirit of the Antichrist is already with us that's yeah it's fallen man so um so this this is a miraculous chapter this is how god sustains the people in israel when there's so many of them and you you go on down and we won't we're not going to go through these details but in in verses 13 through 23 of this chapter 47 Get you ready for chapter 48 god draws the outline if you would of the land of israel he gives the northern border he gives the southern border and then the eastern border is the river jordan and the dead sea and the western border is the mediterranean ocean so he doesn't have to draw those they're literal but he gives the actual cities and while we don't know every one of these, we know some of them. We can guess at where some are by the ancient writings. But it'll be very, very precise during the Millennial Kingdom. It's also helpful to remember in this description that during the Tribulation period, the valleys were raised, the mountains were flattened. Right. during the tribulation, right? You know, I was thinking about this a little bit, and you need to think about these things. You know, you just sit around and you go, how does that work? It doesn't appear that the city that is here, that's in the holy portion given to God, the 25,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits, is in the same place where the city of Jerusalem is today. Because if you, you go to the center, you know, Jerusalem is not in the center of the land between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Ocean. It's much closer to the Jordan than it is to the other side. So the city that I think is the place where Christ is and where the throne is, uh, how does that fit with the city of Jerusalem during the tribulation times? Not sure how all that works together. you i i'm not sure i'm not sure because you, yeah you start drawing drawing the geography and it seems like it should be there but uh, he could move the mountain if he wanted to right right the this, and it's given clearly in tribulation that there are cataclysmic changes to the topology of the earth without any question and so what that actually ends up looking like we don't know we yeah. yeah or the rising waters now you know you you flatten everything and you're going to have some rising waters <laughs> so Yeah. And God is not. And to us, it seems like
1: God doesn't keep his promises because it's been so long
0: since the promise of May. Right. And nothing's happened. And we forget about time compression. It takes well, and God is not bound by time. And you remember, and I think Peter meant this literally, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. So the earth, by the way I measured, is only six days old. Okay. So, it's just been a little while. (laughs) Okay, thanks for your time.